Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, Ottawa's anti-scab legislation. Canada's Labour leaders made the case, and we listened. Liberals followed through on their promise to ban replacement workers, part of the government's supply and confidence agreement with the NDP. But while its tabling is being praised by Labour... It is a historic day for workers in Canada. Business is already expressing its concern. Coming up, we'll speak with the President of the Canadian Labour Congress and the head of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Also... With Liberals losing ground in traditional areas of support, what can we expect to see from the Prime Minister? Does he have a plan to push back? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Today, the Liberal government made good on a promise made back in 2021. This to ban temporary workers during labour disputes like lockouts or strikes. Dubbed anti-scab legislation, it will apply to federally regulated industries like aviation, banking and telecoms. And by tabling the bill today, while the Liberals are also following through on a key demand of the NDP as written in the Supply and Confidence Agreement, between the two parties. When we say the best deals are made at the table, we mean it. So today is about keeping parties focused on the table and providing more stability and certainty for the economy. Bill C-58 will ban the use of replacement workers in federally regulated industries during a strike or a lockout. That means no new contractors, no members of the bargaining unit crossing the picket line. The penalty for violating the ban would be $100,000 per day. Well, with more, we're now joined by B. Brusque, President of the Canadian Labour Congress. Uh, B, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this legislation, this anti-scab legislation, is something that the CLC, you have been fighting for for years, and here you have it. Why is it so important to you? This is really a decades-long culmination of a of, of fight to get this type of legislation in Canada. It is critically important that workers have a strong voice when they get to the bargaining table, and this legislation sets the table as being a balanced bargaining table. Okay, you say balanced, but there, there are others, particularly in the business community, who say this actually tips it in favor of labor by, by essentially making the government a, a non-neutral arbiter anymore because they've gotten, they're introducing this piece of legislation. What do you say to that? What I would say is that the only tool workers have to make sure that their demands are being met um, is to actually withdraw their labor. They can't effectively withdraw their labor if they're going to be replaced by a scab who's going to be taking their place. We've seen record profits over the last number of years we see uh, a significant affordability crisis in this country and workers are falling further and further behind. We need to make sure that when we get to bargaining tables that not just the employees, the workers are ready to bargain seriously, but also that the employer is ready to bargain seriously. Okay, employer ready to bargain, but I'm going to read you something. And this is uh, just one of the many groups that have responded to this introduction now, this tabling. And this is from the Canadian Federation of Labour. They say, quote, if passed, this bill could prolong the duration of strikes and increase their frequency 
frequency. We've seen it happen in British Columbia and Quebec where there's already legislation to ban replacement workers and where they have experienced more strikes than any other jurisdictions. Long strikes at ports or rails hurt small businesses, operations and finances. How do you respond to that? How I would respond is that workers need to know that when they are making a very difficult choice that they need to walk a picket line in order to embolden their demands to get a decent and fair wage, they should not have to worry that they're going to be out for months and months and months at a time because somebody is going to be taking their, their job because their employer is going to hire a scab. We truly believe that this type of legislation is going to be very impactful in forcing employers to be serious at bargaining tables and to try to find resolutions on day one rather than waiting till day 301 and we see you know the port of Montreal strike that's ongoing and languishing and it's been well over a year these are the kinds of strikes that we would like to avoid or to have much more a uh, shortened period of time in because when you can't use scab labor you have to actually pay attention at the bargaining table and you have to bring your best selves to try to get a deal Okay, uh, although they, they, they also will argue that I've seen already put out there that basically this legislation takes power away from workers and gives it to, to individual bargaining units. And because the bargaining units know that they have this legislation, if it is passed, when it is passed, they will go in there far more emboldened, perhaps emboldened rather, perhaps more than membership. You know, I think we need to trust the power of workers themselves. Workers ultimately set the goals that they send their bargaining teams to the bargaining table with, right? There is many consultations that happen with union members well before bargaining starts in terms of what the issues are, what the priorities are. And so workers know what their bargaining team is going to be doing at the bargaining table. Work workers vote on what's being brought back to them. And so we should never underestimate uh, what workers' uh, participation is in these things. And I would say that it actually gives workers a greater ability to control their own destiny. Okay. Now, the bill does have support of both the Liberals and the New Democrats, of course, uh, enough for it to pass. But are there uh, any curveballs that perhaps you're worried about? Because even though it has the, the, the support of the two parties, it still has to go through the process on the Hill. For sure, there is a process that it has to go to and we'll be very vigilant at shepherding uh, and participating in this bill moving forward and moving through the various different stages. We'll be very active at committee meetings to make sure that you know our voice is being heard and that we're raising the voice of workers in terms of the priorities for this particular bill. We also wanna make sure that this bill happens quickly, that it doesn't take an excessive period of time because workers have been counting on this for many, many decades and one day longer is one day too long and so we need to actually make sure that this gets done in a reasonable period of time. Okay, you say period of time. I know you've been in discussions with Jagmeet Singh of the NDP. Uh, has he given any indication to you uh, as to how quickly this might actually go through Parliament? Well, the, 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 num the number of months that we keep hearing is 18 months, right? And so we're hearing that uh, from the Minister, of course, who tabled the legislation earlier today. Um, and while I understand a need for consultation, we think 18 months is a very long period of time. We'd like to see this happen much quicker. Um, we think that those consultations can happen in a much quicker period of time and uh, that workers are really relying on on this to happen. Okay, well, we watch the issue. Uh, B. Brusque, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. Now, again, this anti-scab bill is a condition of the Liberal NDP Supply and Confidence Agreement, and the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh had this to say about the legislation. After decades of battle, after decades of fighting, we are finally going to see a government bill that we forced to make happen that's going to ban scab workers in our country. This is about giving power to workers, 
taking away power from greedy CEOs and making sure workers can fight to get a fair share of the profits that they create with their own labor. Well, let's continue the discussion now with Perrin Beatty, the president and the CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Mr. Beatty, good to see you again. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Now, you and your organization are really expressing some serious reservations about this legislation, uh, so much so uh, that you say it undermines collective bargaining. How does it do that? What the government is doing is it's very firmly putting its thumb on the scales in favor of the unions and saying to them, that there's not a big price to be paid for causing a strike. By doing that, what, they, what they're doing is to disrupt a very carefully constructed balance that Parliament has worked on over the course of literally decades to ensure that there's an incentive for both business and for, um, for labor to come together and negotiate agreements at the negotiating table. And you also add to that that the legislation, uh, and this is from the, the statement that you released, that the legislation undercuts Canada's ability to act as a dependable trading partner. How does it do that? What you could have is even a small bargaining unit that is part of a, a supply chain, putting down the whole supply chain because of the inability to have replacement workers. When that happens, our customers around the world look at Canada and they say, we can't count on Canada to be able to keep the commitments it made in terms of in terms of supplying us as their customer. Okay, but you know, uh, labor uh, of course argues that replacement workers create uh, unfair conditions for, for companies. It gives them unfair bargaining influences, is what essentially they say. Because corporate entities have deeper pockets, they can wait out workers by bringing in non-union employees. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, I think the the key point here is that over the course literally of decades, through intensive work on the part of government, others who've studied it, negotiations between business and labor, we've established a balance, a balance that allows uh, workers to go on strike, unions to go on strike, allows uh, companies to use replacement workers where it's necessary to do so. And it creates an incentive for both sides to negotiate as opposed to having a work disruption. What the government is doing now is they're saying they will help one side, one of the parties, hold a gun to the head of the other, that the other will either capitulate or they will be simply ground down as a result of the labor stoppage, which will prevent them from doing any work whatsoever. Mm. And that's something which is damaging to not simply to the collective bargaining process, but is damaging to Canadian, to Canadian families right across the country and the Canadian businesses. Do you understand the concern, though, regarding uh, not bringing in uh, replacement workers uh, because it, it creates a, a disadvantage for, for labor? Do you understand that argument, or what do you say to it? Well, it? Inevitably, either of the parties is going to be arguing, well, we'd like to skew things in our direction. What Parliament has done up until now is to work very carefully to make sure that it wasn't skewed one way or the other, that there was, an, in fact, an incentive on both sides to be able to, to encourage them to go back to the bargaining table. And most importantly, the role of government isn't to weigh in on, on behalf of one of the, the sides in the labor dispute, it's to protect the public interest. And what we're gonna be finding here is more labor disputes, longer strikes. We'll be finding that it's inflationary in its nature, that it costs jobs where, for example, people have to move their goods to market, can't do it that company may be forced to lay people off so that the effects of this will spill right through the economy. It will mean that Canadian families won't be able to, to uh, get services that they've come to depend on on a daily basis. 
at some point, the government has to look at where does the public interest lie here, as opposed to where can I curry political favor with one party or another. So where does that leave you then? Because here you have this piece of legislation tabled today, supported by the Liberals and New Democrats, enough to get it passed in the House. Where does that leave you and the concerns being expressed by your organization? Well, the thing that's so distressing is that the government is simply simply disregarding the public interest and feels that there's a political advantage for it, particularly in the relationship that it has with the NDP at the present time, to bring forward legislation that will be costly to Canadians and will be disruptive for the collective bargaining process. What's going to be important is for those of us who, who think the public interest should come first, to, for us to take the message to the Canadian people help them to understand what's at stake here and what's being lost. So your hope is that there might still be a chance that this does not pass? At, at the end of the day, governments are accountable to the people who elect them. And if Canadians stand up and they say, look, enough of this, let's stop playing games, let's put the interests of, of Canada as a whole ahead of everything else, uh, perhaps the government can be persuaded to reconsider. And that's what's critical at this point. We have had so many labor disruptions this year. And we have so many pressures on supply chains and we have so many hits that our economy has taken that for the government to consciously choose to inflict more on the Canadian economy and on the Canadian people just makes no sense whatsoever. Perrin Beatty, always appreciate the time. Thank you for that tonight. Thank you for having me. Well, another week and another bad poll for the Prime Minister, this time from Main Street Research, saying not only is Trudeau's personal popularity testing, quote, new depths in the country, Liberals are also now trailing Conservatives in Quebec. So to talk about this is our political panel, Susan Smith, Principal at the Blue Sky Strategy Group, Tim Powers, Chairman of Summa Strategies, and Anne McGrath, the National Director for the NDP. Hello to the three of you. Hello, Hello. Michael. Hi. I'm going to get you to start us off here, Anne, because when you look at this number for Liberals in Quebec, how bad is that for the party? Well, I mean, you know, we're fond of saying in politics that, that you're, you don't look at any particular poll, like it, that's just a snapshot and it's that day or that, that week or whatever that you look for trends. But there's no question that the trends are pretty bad right now for the Liberals. Uh, like poll after poll shows them, you know, kind of uh, behind and slipping further almost with every single, single poll. So it is bad. And you couple that with some of the, the problems that have been happening in the last, like what happened with the, uh, the uh, home heating stuff in, uh, in the Atlantic. And, you know, just so many things are going wrong for them right now. So I think it's bad. And, and also I think that uh, a lot of the hope that uh, resides in the Liberal Party and caucus right now has been that Quebec will be there for them. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't look like it's going to be the case uh, if, this, if this poll is more than just a snapshot and is actually portending some kind of a trend. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tim, what would you say to that? Uh, well, a few things. Anne's trends point is a key one. And it's been a few months now that the Liberal, there's been at least a 10-point gap nationally and then regional breakouts. I, I would say, no offense against Main Street, because I would say it about our polling company, Abacus, I'll be interested to see what the Quebec-based pollsters say about what's happening in Quebec. But if ourselves Ab uh, and Main Street and others are right, the Liberals trailing in Quebec is a problem for them because I think a lot of their math, this is also why you saw the carve out in the Atlantic to getting reelected is holding what you can in the Atlantic Canada 
beating everybody in Quebec and then hoping you do well in some urban settings in Toronto and Vancouver and elsewhere. So, you know, it's just another series of uh, things that Justin Trudeau has to figure out over the next number of months. Put out the usual caveat, we're still, well, Anne can tell us, but we're still probably <laughs> a year to two away from an election. So it's not fatal, but it's not good. Yeah, not good. Uh, and I, I do, uh, I, you know, as Tim's talking about the, the, the math here, certainly the, the equation seems to become much harder, much harder to pull together for the Liberals if they cannot carry Quebec. Well, I think it's a little soon to write off Quebec. As Tim points out, there is no election in the short term. I think we're at least a year out from an election. But Anne's right. The polls have been trending for the Liberals in a certain direction. I think there's time for a course correction. What I've seen this fall is caucus get pointier, question period get pointier. And I think you're going to see more of that. And I think there's a certain there's quite a bit of pressure within caucus for those around the prime minister to allow things to get pointier. That means, I think, more aggressive um, uh, campaigns, advertising campaigns, social media campaigns around Pierre Polyev. I think we're hopefully going to see some of that. I know there are lots of people that would like that. So I think it's too soon to um, you know, put a stake in anything at this point in time. I expect to see some change and some continued amped up. The other thing, too, is... We've never had the benefit of an intense level of scrutiny on Mr. Polyev. There's always a ton of scrutiny on the prime minister. People are familiar with him. People get tired of mm. leaders over time and governments eight years in. It's a challenge. But I think you will see as people are as a greater microscope goes on to Mr. Polyev and he's forced to outline what some of his policies are and people really go, oh, yeah, who is that guy? Uh, you're going to see that gap close. Yeah, although, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you use the word policy because it, certainly the, the Liberals are right now, you, you mentioned it with the with the Atlantic carve-out when it comes to the carbon tax. They, they face the, this this challenge where, and this is just an example, on the one hand you see the Environment Commissioner saying you need to lean heavily on, on the carbon tax in order to, to get your, your environmental targets back on track, and up against that the, the calls to axe the carbon tax altogether. So is there a policy front where the Liberals might be able to turn the numbers around, do you think? Well, will the next, how deep a policy discussion will there be in the next election, or will it be right down to, I like that guy, I don't like that guy, or I like that guy a little less than I like that guy? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's sorry, it's not a very sophisticated way to do it. Um, I think there'll be certainly be a climate change discussion on the next election. The Trudeau Liberals have always said it's about finding a balance between the economy and the environment. It was never about gutting one for the other. And so there, I think people are feeling a pinch. There's no question people have had a difficult amount of time. Like I said, though, I think there's time to right the ship. I hope the Liberals find a message that appeals to people at their kitchen tables. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the, um, the likability of the leaders whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing will come into play come final come election day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, added to that, I think that's fair. I think there will be an analysis of the leaders, but chaotic versus coherent. I think the part of the reason the Liberals have slipped in the polls is they they look chaotic on any number of fronts, fairly or unfairly. I think we've seen this in data. One of the things that stood out for me in our our poll. Uh, where liberals were judging Justin Trudeau was that they're not sure about his vision anymore. They're not sure where he's going. Now, that's not unusual for a government eight years in, but it is a problem if you're trying to say, for example, on climate change, the liberals saying, well, we have a coherent plan. Well, do you now that you did this? So if you're eating away at your own credibility 
and the other side, while not offering anything, at least to, appears to be coherent in what it's focusing on, i.e. affordability, that's another challenge. That's solved both by policy and disciplined focus on certain issues where you still have credibility. Mm -hmm. It yeah. is looking like this next election is going to be a change election, and yes. that would be, that's probably bad news uh, for the Liberals, and also uh, uh, potentially a referendum on, on, on them. And, and that's not good for, for an incumbent government, that's usually problematic if, it, if it's a referendum rather than a choice kind of uh, election. But that said, I don't think you can write any yeah. major political party in this country out, uh, and and everyone has had their their downs. I mean, conservatives including went, with the current leadership. Well, I mean, sometimes leadership uh, does you know it does ha have a, a play a factor in it. But but you know the the we've seen the conservatives go down to two seats. We've seen the liberals uh, really go. Things went very badly in 2011. We've seen in in my party. I've seen us with 13 seats. Yeah. I've seen us with 103 seats. So you can't really write a political party out, um, even though, even though they might have kind of uh, you know some bad moments. Mm -hmm. Some bad moments. But you know uh, we're going to go into a break next week, Parliament's not sitting, we return, and then it becomes this very busy uh, agenda because we, we heard from Christopher Freeland that on the 21st of November there will be the fall economic statement. Add to that uh, Pharmacare, because that, according to the Supply and Commerce Agreement, something has to be passed before the end of 2023, and then Stephen Guilbeault talking about uh, emissions cap as well as clean energy regulation. So very busy last few weeks of the 2023 session, arguably. So is there anything there that the parties might Take advantage of, take advantage of, or benefit for them uh, rounding out the year. I'll begin with you, Susan. Uh, you've listed a number of things. I definitely expect the cap um, on emissions to come out. I think near the end of the November was what I was hearing on that. The, pri um, the deputy prime minister will be doing the economic reset. I'm skeptical if PharmaCare is going to get introduced and passed in the five weeks that will be left. That's a very, very big discussion, and I think that's something that shouldn't be rushed. We have to look at what we can afford as a country and what to do. It is part of the supply and confidence agreement with the NDP. It did say it was supposed to be passed by the end of the, the year. Mark Holland, the health minister, signaled that something was coming. I don't think it'll be by the end of the year. I think there's an opportunity that everybody will go home to their constituencies. They'll do their Remembrance Day ceremonies and honour the veterans, as we always do as Canadians. Come back, they'll have taken the temperature once again of their constituents. And I think they will, I think it again will be the issues of affordability, the ho housing, the government's made progress and headway on that. You're, it's a little, it's still in the headlines, but not quite at the top. Um, so movement, but not massive, I don't think, between now and the end of the year. Okay, Tim? Yeah, the reset thing is fascinating, right? If you go back to last fall, or sorry, last spring, last March, I mean, that was going to be the first reset after the Liberals began the year, not in a great place. And then we've had cabinet shuffle, and that was going to be a reset. And then we had the announcement on the Atlantic carve-out, and that was going to be a reset. I think the opposition parties will be watching to see if the government does get traction on FEZ, because the federal, federal economic statement, because they haven't gotten it so far. I think the challenge in particular for the Conservatives is to be as disciplined as they can at the moment and still leave the ball in the court of the Liberals. That old military adage, when your opponent is making a mistake, don't interfere with it. The challenge I think Pierre Polyev has, and, and perhaps the NDP as well, is 
not to overreach too much. You saw a little bit of that, I think, this week with the, the various motions on do you, do you support home heating oil reduction or don't you? I think it was useful once. I'm not sure a series of them were. So discipline's a hard thing when you're in opposition parties, both opposition parties, feeling like we're almost there, we're almost there. But it shows how capable you could be should you ever become government. Mm-hmm. And? Yeah, I mean, you're right. There's a very, very major uh, uh, agenda ahead of us. Uh, and I think it's only actually four sitting weeks, something oh, like that. Yeah. yeah, great. That's yeah. even yeah, faster. I think it's, yeah. Right. yeah. So, so it's, it's a quite an agenda, and and it's interesting to me how the the economic statement, the fiscal economic statement, has now become almost like a budget. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it used to be just an update, but uh, I mean, I remember it being just an update, but now it is almost like a budget, and so there are, you know, high expectations, particularly on housing. I would say, um, so I think that I I, I see uh, some very late nights and some very tired. MPs yeah. in the next few weeks. And actually picking up on Pharmacare though, because again, in the letter of the Supply and Confidence Agreement, something needs to be passed yes. before the end of 2023. So so what are you hearing on that? Um, <laughs> Tell Michael, he wants to break news. some news. Are we going to election, election We're still will, friends though, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> what I will say though, just like not not on that, but, but you're right, it is that is in the agreement that, that, that the legislation has to be introduced and passed before the end of the year. But the, on the emissions cap, I will say that I think that that's going to be a bit of a push because they, I think that the Liberals do need to regain some of the credibility on the environmental front that they lost in the last week or so over uh, the uh, Atlantic uh, exemption on carbon pricing. Yeah, although uh, look for pushback from Alberta, whatever I'm comes out. I'm expecting so. to see tons and tons new programs, new initiatives in the Fez. I think they're going to hold a lot of that firepower for the budget. I think it's there, there may be one or two things, um, particularly related to housing, but. I think the big stuff is in the budget. The, the finance minister is going to re- set the fiscal table for people so they understand what we're dealing with going forward and why the government has to do what it has to do. Okay, well, we are watching without I'll convene around the Fez with the three of you again. But for now, thank you, Anne. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Time now for a look at the other stories making headlines today. Police in Montreal are investigating two separate shootings at two Jewish schools. They happened overnight when the schools were empty and no one was injured. No arrests have been made, but these latest incidents do come as Canada deals with a rise in violence and anti-Semitism, including an incident last night at Concordia University, something Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressed today. No matter how strongly felt your fears or convictions are, it doesn't give you the right to do what we saw yesterday at Concordia or in the shots fired at Jewish schools today in Montreal. These are not, not who we are. Israel is agreeing to pause its military operations in northern Gaza for four hours daily starting today. The long called for pauses aim to allow civilians to flee from the fighting and let humanitarian aid into Gaza. Meanwhile, the Foreign Affairs Minister announced more Canadians were able to leave Gaza today and more are expected to leave tomorrow, though nothing, says Melanie Jolie, is guaranteed. We uh, do not control the Rafa gate being open or not. We do not control neither who crosses and when. 
Newfoundland and Labrador is launching a basic income program for residents aged 60 to 64 who are on social assistance. The new measure is part of the province's new poverty reduction plan. Premier Andrew Fury saying the three-year phased plan aims to improve the province's income support system. The province is also launching a scheme to provide a $150 monthly supplement for low-income families with young children and increasing the child benefit tax credit by 300%. Fury says beginning in September, the government will work to expand lunch and breakfast programs in all schools. And finally tonight, Quebec is getting nearly a billion dollars in federal funding to accelerate home construction. The Prime Minister and Quebec Premier Francois Legault making the joint announcement at an affordable housing project in the Greater Montreal area. The province says the financial boost from Ottawa will help to build more than 8,000 units. And one more note that we want to share with you tonight. We now have a date for Ottawa's fall economic update. The Finance Minister, Christian Freeland, sharing it will happen on November the 21st. Of course, we'll have special coverage for you on that day right here on CPAC. But for now, that is our program on this Thursday. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at Primetime Politics, thank you for watching. Up next, Estée Vigène avec les sociales.